Plato's Cave is produced by Muckraker Media. You can find out more at muckrakermedia.org. Welcome to Plato's Cave. I'm Jordan Myers, and today we're going to take another step towards exiting the cave by speaking with Dr. Brandon Robshaw. Brandon is a lecturer in philosophy at the Open University, where he also got his PhD in philosophy. He has written over 26 children's novels and over 60 educational books. And his latest book is an, uh, an academic monogram in the field of political philosophy, Should a Liberal State Ban the Burqa? This was published on the 11th of June of this year. And Brandon and I spoke today about uh, his book, but before that, about Nietzsche's sense of ret- eternal recurrence. Um, he wrote a great article for Philosophy Now about this topic earlier this year as well, and, um, and that was the basis of our conversation. I really, really enjoyed this talk. Um, I found it very, very interesting and thought-provoking, and I really hope that you enjoy it too. So with that introduction, please enjoy my conversation with Brandon Robshaw. Um, but first of all, yeah, thanks for doing this before we get into it. That is my pleasure. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. So you, I did a little bit of research, um, and you're a lecturer at uh, the Open University, um, and you lecture in philosophy. But where did you get your PhD? I got my PhD with, with the Open University. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, so it was, it, it was uh, a part-time PhD. It actually took me seven years to get. And uh, I did it in, in political philosophy. So mm. I didn't study Nietzsche for my PhD. That's, Nietzsche's just a kind of lay interest of mine, really. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's really cool. So what was it? I mean, I'm assuming, did that make it slightly easier to get a position at the same school you got your PhD from? Well, I was, I was already employed at the Open University. I've actually been teaching for them for over 20 years. I did my master's there as well. Uh, and one of the perks of working for the Open University is that you get free tuition if you choose to, to study there. Mm. Um, so I, it was kind of like professional development for me, really. I, I, was, I was learning while I was teaching. That sounds amazing. I'm very jealous of that, yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, because in fact, I, I originally started teaching for the Open University. I was lecturing in creative writing because I'm a, I'm a children's novelist. So that was, that was the work I was initially employed for, to teach literature and creative writing. And I developed an interest in philosophy um, while I was working there. Oh, that's interesting. How, so like at what age would you say did you really decide that you wanted to study philosophy? Well, I came to it quite late in life. I, I did a couple of undergraduate courses uh, in my 30s, but I didn't do my master's uh, until I was in my mid-40s. Hmm. Um, and I, I completed the PhD two years ago, and I'm, I'm in my 50s now, so it's, I've actually come to it pretty late. Wow. I feel like that is more common in philosophy than almost maybe any other subject for people yeah. to arrive to it later. Yeah. 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 I'm, I'm not sure... I guess I don't really have a good intuition of why that is. Maybe it's, I mean, it cuts to the core interests of everything that we care about in life. Maybe it's something to do with that. Maybe it's something to do with that. I also think that when we're younger, we tend to be a little bit more certain about things, a little bit more quick to think that we have the answers, <laughs> a little bit more dogmatic perhaps. And I think you lose that a little bit as you get older, which makes you more receptive perhaps to taking on different ideas in philosophy. Mm, I'm amenable to that idea too. Yeah, it's <laughs> it seems very reasonable. 
so I, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to, to get into um, the, the paper or the essay that you wrote um, for Philosophy Now on Nietzsche and then to talk about your new book also. Okay. Um, but actually, I guess I'm curious because I, I think I read that you've, you've written over 60 books. It's something like that, right? That's right. But a lot of them are quite, they're small uh, educational books, mm-hmm. um, sh- uh, kind of reading books for use in schools. Some of them mm-hmm. are, are educational books. So a lot of them are quite short. Um, but I have written um, six children's novels under my own name, as, as well as various things under pen names, as well as various educational books. Wow. How do you, I mean, how many uh, like classes do you teach a semester? Where do you get the time to do all this writing? Well, we have to do quite a lot of juggling. But the, of course, the thing about the open university is that a lot of the tuition is is online. Even even before the pandemic, um, face-to-face tutorials were quite rare. Most of it is online. Hmm. Um, and so you, often the, the tutorials are at odd times. They're at evenings or weekends. So I can be quite flexible about my, my working hours during the day. So I can usually steal an hour or two to do some writing in the course hmm. of the day. So you're kind of used to what everyone's going through now then with the online lecturing. Oh yes. We were very well prepared for it. Yeah. Hmm. So I'm just curious because from a, um, from a student side, um, like I, you know, I graduated before all of this hit, I was, I graduated about eight to nine months before, before the pandemic hit, but I've been still sitting in, I've been taking, you know, classes for audit during it. And I have to say, I, I really, really miss the old way of doing things, to be honest. Yeah. I, the in-person lectures really, I don't know if that's, you know, personality quirks that I have um, or not, but I'm just curious if you, if you have a kind of a favorite. No, I've, I've got a lot of sympathy with your view, actually. I, I do prefer face-to-face tuition, really. Hmm. Um, and in, a, in a, a regular year's tuition with the Open University before the, before the pandemic hit, I would have seen the students face to face about once a month. Um, And that, uh, that was quite valuable. I think that was quite an important link. I'd actually then made the online meetings kind of more, more personal and more meaningful. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. I could see a mix being a good balance, but it's just, yeah, I, there's something less engaging to be honest about every single, you know, interaction and every single class being online. Well, I think that's true. And of course in philosophy, there is this tradition of, gathering discussion face-to-face mm-hmm. talks symposiums you know going all the way back to to, to, to socrates it, it, philosophy is a, it's a face-to-face encounter isn't it mm-hmm. that's true yeah i, I suppose maybe you know a, a, a mathematics course might be yeah. less of a difference between being online yeah. and being in person but but yeah you're right so <clears throat> we're going to talk about uh like i mentioned the the first paper it's called eternal recurrence revisited and if people want to read it for themselves, I'll leave a link in the description below. But, um, but, but I love the opening line. You say, I read Friedrich Nietzsche with a mixture of admiration, amusement, outrage, and exasperation, which I, I laughed because, um, you know, I definitely, I definitely sympathize with that. Um, and you say it's like listening to a man talking at the top of his voice all the time, and it becomes wearisome. Yes. But his writing is extremely rich, stimulating, and crammed with ideas. Um, so I'm assuming that this is one of his ideas that you're more sympathetic to. Yeah, this is what, one, of, one of his ideas that really, really caught my imagination. Um, and perhaps we should just say a word or two about Nietzsche for people who aren't familiar with his work. He's not one of these systematic, careful philosophers who, who spends a whole book outlining a case uh, and arguing for it at every point in the manner of 
of Kant or Schopenhauer. Um, he is a much more individualist, quirky, original philosopher than that. It's hard to actually pin down what his, what his style is because it's so varied. For instance, in, in the joyous science, which is where the eternal recurrence example comes from, that opens with a series of poems. Uh, later on, there's a series of aphorisms, there's a kind of catechism, a question and answer, and there are these short, brief essays, almost paragraph length. Um, and sometimes it's, I mean, one of his most famous books, Thus Spoke Zarathustra, it's hard to know whether to characterise that as a novel or a work of philosophy. I suppose it's both. Mm. Um, and so he, he is a very entertaining writer uh, but as I said he can be he can be quite an exasperating writer as well because he's sometimes <laughs> quite hard to pin him down he's always changing the subject mm. um, but the particular idea that I was talking about eternal recurrence it, it, it occurs uh, about two-thirds of the way through his book The Joyous Science um, the earlier translations of this book were called uh, The Gay Science the, the, the German title is uh, Die Fröhliche Wissenschaft um, but subsequent uh, translations, they call it the joyous science, because of course the word gay has changed, changed its meaning. Um, but the idea that kind of jumped out of me, and I think I'm going to read the, the, the passage to you. Uh, it's a short section, which is kind of the subheading is the greatest weight. And this is what he says. What if one day or night a demon came to you? in your most solitary solitude and said to you, this life, as you now live it and have lived it, you will have to live again and innumerable times again, and there will be nothing new in it, but rather every pain and joy, every thought and sigh, and all the unutterable, trivial, all great things in your life will have to happen to you again with everything in the same series and sequence. And likewise, this spider and this moonlight between the trees, and likewise this moment, and I myself, the eternal hourglass of existence will be turned over again and again, and you with it, you speck of dust. Would you not throw yourself down and gnash your teeth and curse the demon who spoke to you thus? Or was there one time when you experienced a tremendous moment in which you would answer him, you are a god, and I've never heard anything so divine. If that thought took hold of you as you are, it would transform you and perhaps crush you. The question with regard to each and everything, do you want this again, innumerable times, would weigh upon your actions with the greatest weight? Or how well disposed would you have to become to yourself and to life that you might long for nothing more than this final, eternal confirmation and seal. So this is the kind of the thought experiment. It's beautifully, beautifully written, isn't it? It's a marvellous yes. prose, even in translation, I think. Um, so the idea is, nature presents this as a kind of test. If we're told that we'll have to undergo every single moment again and again, an, an, an infinite number of times, how do we feel? Do we feel crushed with despair? Do we think, oh, no, I can't? <laughs> or, do <we> think, <laughs> or do we think, that's great, that is fantastic? And I think the implied thing here is, Nietzsche's point is, if your reaction is despair, that suggests that you're not living your life right. You don't have a good relationship with your life. You're not, you're not affirming your own life. 
Mm. It is, it's such a powerful idea in that sense because it, you know, it, it really does. It's like you said, it's the litmus test of what, what are your true feelings about your life? I mean, if you're condemning yourself or, or, um, you know, rewarding yourself with these experiences over and over, it, it just cuts through the facade of sort of a, a finite look at life where this is just kind of a moment in time. And this is just something we have to get through. It's really powerful in that sense. And, and I think you said that Nietzsche, there's been some private writings, you know, uncovered from him that suggests he actually believes that this is true. Uh, that, that is correct. Um, according to his private letters and, and, and diaries, uh, he, often, he writes about this as, as if he thinks it, it, it is actually true. It, it's, it's a fact. Mm. Um, and, of course, the interesting thing is, for people who know Nietzsche's biography, he had a very, very sad life. I mean, everything, everything went wrong for him, really. Mm. Uh, his father and his brother died when he was very young. He always suffered from ill health. He had migraines he had poor vision uh he once thought of himself as a as a soldier uh joined the army and within a very few months fell off his horse and hurt his chest quite badly so he had to be um kind of uh, uh, invalided out of the army uh he, and in fact he tried to rejoin about 10 years later and then he got really bad dysentery and diphtheria and once again <laughs> yeah, on medical grounds he had to leave the army <laughs> one kind of thing that didn't, didn't go well for him uh he never he never found love he, he often fruitlessly fell in love with women who didn't return his affection um and he never he never found uh, recognition either although we now think of him as one of the the great philosophers in his life he didn't sell many books and he wasn't widely recognized and he never had much money mm. um he he was a university pr- professor for about eight years but he had to retire from that again on grounds of ill health uh and lived the rest of his life on really quite a small pension um and couldn't do many of the things that he enjoyed doing in fact apparently he, he was a great lover of uh, um ham and pork and bacon and sausages but he couldn't afford them so he was <laughs> deprived of one of his main pleasures in life um but despite that i, I do think that one of the one of the likable things about Nietzsche is he's not a, he's not a sour grapes philosopher he doesn't disvalue things that, that he can't have um and he he does it seems really believe that he will he will live the same life over and over again and he embraces that he actually does embrace that Mm. Yeah, the thing that really struck me is, and, and, I, and I don't think this might be obvious at first pass, is you're not only, you know, under this idea of reliving the same events, but yeah. you're, you're reliving the same feelings and experiences. And that, it, it really, I mean, it kind of lends itself to a very, um, maybe like a stoic interpretation. That's, that's kind of my initial thought. No, I think that's quite a good thought, actually. I hadn't, hadn't thought of that. Of course, as we know, uh, Nietzsche was very well well grounded in classical literature and the ancient Greeks. He would have known Stoic philosophy well. Mm. Um, I think that's a good point that you make because it's not this recurrence is not is not Groundhog Day. You can't change things, mm. as you say. Every experience and emotion will be identical. But I think. That, I, t- I take the point about the comparison with the Stoics. You have to accept life as it is. Mm-hmm. But I think it's a little bit more than that. I mean, I think that, that the Stoics, part of their program is to avoid extremes of emotion so that mm-hmm. you won't be too distressed when things go wrong. 
Nietzsche, I think, doesn't want to avoid extremes of emotion. He does actually want to sort of mm. gladly welcome this existence and every aspect of it. So he's perhaps, maybe we could say he's more of a positive Stoic than a negative Stoic. Yeah, yeah. And maybe he, you know, I, I don't know if, if he would say this or not, but he might sort of, you know, embrace the, like you said, the kind of the positive side of things. And then maybe, you know, there is this um, idea of amor fati, if I'm pronouncing that right, where where it's sort of, almost embracing um, and sort of, you know, steering into the skid of one's fate where you might say, well, you know, of course there are going to be like, like Nietzsche experienced a ton of negative aspects of life, but that doesn't mean we have to sort of necessarily, you know, revel in them or, or let them kind of vitiate the rest of life. Yes. Yes. I think that's right. And I think the attitude of acceptance of one's faith, fate or or love of one's fate is is, is the translation of Amor Fati. Um, I think that's very important uh, in Nietzsche. I think one of the things that he despises is people who, who like grumble or complain or whine <laughs> about their yeah. lot in life. We've just got to accept the whole thing, which in a way is, is that's quite a kind of inspiring philosophy, I think. Yeah, I agree. I, I do agree. And it made me, it made me really think, you know, my, I was just kind of jotting down my initial thoughts as I read this. Yeah. <clears throat> and one of the first things that, that struck me is, it immediately just, you know, kind of thinking about this, there was, there were kind of two thoughts um, and they're parallel, but different. It, it made me really think of, you know, cause, cause you, I think you, you mull over, you know, reading this as sort of a younger man versus on your deathbed. Yeah. Um, and it made me think about, you know, where do I want to take my life in a, in a sort of a positive sense, but it also really made me consider what are the things that, are sort of you know a waste of time or going wrong or sort of needless emotional expenditures yeah. of energy yeah and w- which actually that is also quite a stoical view you're right about that um yes now i think typically for nietzsche he does he doesn't provide a lot of commentary on this idea he doesn't kind of flesh things out and like fill in all the details mm. but that's what i wanted to do in, in the article that, that you mentioned so as you suggested, it does make a difference, supposing that this demon does appear to you and tells you this great truth. Mm. It does make a difference when in your life that happens. I think if that happened when you were a child, uh, that would colour your attitude to experience for the rest of your life. Whatever happened to you, you'd be thinking, oh, this is going to happen again and again. Mm. Um, and if it, if it occurred midway through one's life, it wouldn't affect the first part of one's life at all. But the second half of one's life, again, you'd feel, you'd almost kind of feel the demon at your shoulder all the mm. time saying, are you really enjoying this? Do you really want to do this again? <laughs> That's uh, how I felt was the, yeah. The, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that might be quite a, quite, might be a good way of guiding your life so that you do do things that are worthwhile and fulfilling because they're, they're going to be a permanent possession for you. Mm. Um, now I have discussed this with people who have said, I don't think, this makes any difference. I've, I've, I've heard the argument that because each time feels like the first time, it might as well be the first time. I don't think I agree with that though. I think just the knowledge that it is going to happen again, even, even though it won't feel like it, but you know, intellectually, you know, I think that will make a difference to how you experience it. And as I said in the article, I think that will intensify your reactions to things. Mm. It, it could be, I, I could imagine, you know, sort of taking this idea on board yeah. 
and and you know acting as if it were true without really being sure one way or another because you know yeah. what evidence could we have to constitute a belief yeah. either way yeah. but it, it i think it does i mean i i agree with you i i think it actually does have the potential to shift the way you live um yeah. and i i under i think i do really i i do understand the intuition of people who say it couldn't matter because you know almost, almost, you know, logically speaking, if you are in this recurring loop, it can't feel like a new time every time because that is paradoxical. I understand that. Yeah. But I do think that sort of taking this on board gives a different valence to things. And I think that can be really useful. Yes. Yes. I agree. The only other, I think, possible problem, which I've mentioned towards the end of the article, Hmm. is if we start to think of the sequence of lives in its totality, that never ends. So we're used to a conception of life in which the present has a certain kind of relationship to the past. Mm -hmm. So we think it's possible to atone for things. We think that redemption is possible. We think improvement and progress within one's own life are possible. And yet, if we're going to take on board the idea that the whole thing just repeats on an eternal loop, then ideas of atonement, redemption, forgiveness, improvement, progress start to seem rather unreal, don't they? Because you're constantly being placed back at square one. And that, to me, is a problem area with this. And I haven't quite worked out how to, how to think about that, really. Yeah, it's, an, it's a very interesting point because it, it almost sort of atomizes different events as sort of these are just things that happen. Yes. And just it, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it, it almost sort of, uh, it doesn't remove causality because sort of, you know, within, within one go around, it, it yeah. does preserve yeah. the concept. Yeah. yeah. But I take your point. It's very, it's very sort of, it weakens the continuity, the sense of continuity that we have. Yeah. I don't know what Nietzsche would do with that. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, not, sure. Yeah, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Yeah. Because, I mean, you know, if you, I mean, like you said, you know, something like atonement or forgiveness, um, you know, if, if I, you know, wrong someone in the, in the typical kind of quintessential view of life, you know, I, I almost have this imperative, this duty to, well, I got to make, you know, things right with this person. Yeah. But, you know, considering that this is just going to happen again, and then it just, <laughs> yeah. you know, it, it places, I, I don't know, it's sort of, it almost sort of, you know, seems to flatline all events, and it puts them all on the same ground in a way that, I, like we've been speaking about, can be very powerful, but also yeah. can, can be a little problematic. Yes. So I think there are, there are two very different ways of looking at this. There, there is one way, which was, which was my first kind of instinct, is that taking this idea on board can make life more meaningful, more intense, more, you you can immerse yourself in it more, it's positive. But then there's another way of looking at it in which it might seem to make life meaningless. Mm. Um, And I'm, I'm temperamentally on the side of the first interpretation, but I can, I can see the the problem that the second one poses. I totally, I totally agree with you. I think I'm temperamentally on the first side and I, I actually wrote down, it made me think about, um, I can't remember exactly where it is in the article, but you say that um, I can't find exactly where it is, but I think you say that um, 
you know, oh, here it is. So you say a third response, which Nietzsche did not consider would be to feel neither elated nor horrified at the idea, but indifferent. After all, however many times one lives this life, each time always feels like the first and only time. No memories are carried over from one incarnation to the next. So what difference would it make anyway? And I kind of wrote down that um, this reminded me of, of Thomas Nagel's answer to the absurd. Um, oh, yes. Yeah, where, you know, for people who may not know, there's, you know, this sort of, um, there's the sense of the absurd where, where Nagel lays it out. The, the sense of the absurd is that we cannot help but you know, fall back into this, you know, deeply caring about things and, and things, you know, really deeply mattering to us, our reputation, our interpersonal struggles, you know, all of this is just ripe with meaning for us. And we're always concerned about this going through life. But he points out that we can always step back and just say, but, but why does it matter? How could it possibly matter? You know, there's no, the universe is going to end, we're all going to die. It's just, it doesn't matter. Yeah. But the absurd for Nagel you know, is that tension that we know that latter premise is true, but we cannot help but fall back into the, the former predisposition. And Nagel sort of shrugs his shoulders and says, eh, I, I don't really care. You know, it's not it. I think he says, I can't quote it directly, but he says it neither warrants that much concern nor that much, you know, praise or, or something. I, I can't remember. Um, and sort of scorns Camus uh, for his response Yes. to it yeah which is to sort of you know shrug his shoulders and pump his fist at the universe and say i will make my own meaning and that's and nagel says that's true but just you know calm down about it a little bit yeah. there's actually yeah. <laughs> um a lovely example he gives in that in, in that in that paper that you quote where he talks about watching a mouse Mm. And you probably remember this. And he says, just imagine watching a mouse is scurrying around. It's little heart is beating fast. It's trying to find food. It's trying to find a mate. It's trying to escape from predators. It's trying to get back to its whole, it's, 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 its whole kind of existence to the mouse is absolutely full of urgency and importance and meaning. And when we look at the mouse, we just think <laughs> <laughs> it's only a mouse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what is different about us mm. is that we, in a way, we kind of know that we are the we are capable of taking that step back, as you say, and looking at our life from more of a distance and getting things into a kind of ironic perspective. The mouse can't do that, but we can. So we have a dual perspective. We can be fully immersed in the moment and thinking things are very important, but at any moment we can step back and, as he says, the thing to do is to cultivate a sense of irony mm. towards our existence rather than this kind of like heroic teeth gritting that Camus suggests. Yeah. yeah, it it made me really it made me think of that because it seems like, you know, that might be the analogous uh, proper response to this, you know, this thing that Nietzsche is coming up with where, you know, like you said, embrace the positive side, you know, kind of have that lust for life and, and gusto yeah. for what you're doing and, and go after it. And when things, you know, don't go right, well, then it's kind of just, you know, it's okay. Yeah, no, that's very good. I think we can have that kind of dual perspective. And I think the comparison with Nagel is quite illuminating there. Yeah, good. Yeah, it, it immediately struck me um, as that. And then I, I also was thinking, you know, how it might change your perspective to, you know, because, because this, 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 this recurrence is eternal for Nietzsche, we're always, you know, somewhere in the middle, kind of, right? But it was, it kind of struck me to consider how this might change your perspective if you imagine that you're, on the very first go around and uh -huh. what you do now will set the course uh -huh. of all of those. 
<laughs> and that and that seems to put immense meaning on whatever you're doing, as opposed yeah. to being in the middle. Yeah, yeah. You're set. As you say, you're setting the template, aren't you? For, mm-hmm. for eternity. Yeah. Yeah. And it and and you know to go back to that intuition that you were talking about, I I do I can almost sort of see uh, the sense of which you know you were you're saying that you've had discussions with people who say this I don't really care one way or the other, and I guess. I guess, you know, to be sympathetic to that, you could say, well, what's the difference between only having one go around where this is, you're setting the tone because it's the only tone that you're going to have versus, you know, you're going to have infinite go arounds and this is the first. That distance seems to collapse a bit. Yes. Um, Yes. Yes. I mean, I don't actually know if, if Nietzsche had in mind that there ever was a first. I mean, this could be a sequence that just goes back Mm eternally in time as well as forward eternally in time. Mm. Um, but I agree, it's, it's quite a, a, um, a kind of useful thought experiment to imagine that it is the first. Mm-hmm. And we're, and we're just <laughs> kind of setting the markers, yeah. It, it, imagining it's the first, you know, it really seems to put immense pressure on you. And, yeah. and conversely, imagining it's the last gives it a very lackadaisical feeling. It's, yeah. know, it's just this is the last go around <laughs> the ride. <laughs> <laughs> And maybe, you know, maybe the point is, you know, we should kind of hold those two in constant tension. If, if we imagine that we're in the middle, you know, uh, may, maybe, you know, I don't know, but maybe that's kind of one of the points Nietzsche was getting at is, you know, have both of those you know, considerations in mind. Yes. Well, of course, as Socrates famously said, the unexamined life is not worth living. And this thought experiment, I think, is a great way to induce one to examine one's life. Mm. And I, looking yeah. at from these different perspectives... It is a, is a very good way of self-examination, I think. Yeah, yeah. It, it, and you say, so, you know, you go into, in the paper, you, you say, you know, let's imagine that, that tonight the, the demon appears to you. Um, and, and you say, you know, you suggest that painful memories would become more painful and that what, you know, you personally would find really hard to accept is your own stupid mistakes. And, and that I very much empathized with because, you know, you can put this sort of stoic slant on things that just tend to happen, things that just, you know, occurrences. Well, we kind of have to accept those. But it makes your own mistakes much less acceptable. (laughs) Uh, And to know that you're going to have to do them again, dumbly, blindly, unthinkingly, you're going to fall into all those traps again. Mm. That, That is the downside. But as I go on to say, there are also lots of you know, wonderful memories. Every life is full of them. I'm sure that it would be absolutely marvelous to think of revisiting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and yeah, it's just it's very interesting that Nietzsche. I just it's very strange that he seemed to believe that this was true. You know, I wonder. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I can point to it, it's from the 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 editor of this of this edition. Hmm. Um, I can quote where he where he says that. Um, Uh, I'll just, yeah, okay, here we are. The evidence of Nietzsche's notebooks suggests that he regarded the eternal recurrence not only as a terrifying or exhilarating thought experiment, but as actually true, indeed, provably true. This colours the idea in a very different way than those who regard Nietzsche's notion as purely hypothetical thought. In fact, it is hard to imagine why Nietzsche would have placed such an enormous emphasis on the idea if he thought it was merely a challenging hypothetical with which we might reconsider our fundamental attitudes. 
Um, and he goes on to say, um, what's the name of this editor? He's called uh, Kevin Hill. Kevin Hill. Mm. He goes on to say that the kind of the culmination of Thus Spoke Zarathustra, which of course was a, 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 a book that came after this, mm. uh, the culmination of that is that is that Zarathustra said that he's going to preach the message of eternal recurrence to everybody. So it does suggest that Nietzsche did take the idea more literally than than, than we're taking it. I think. Yeah. And, and I, I, that was another thing I, I jotted down at the end of this is it, it's interesting that, um, like you say, thus spoke Zarathustra came after the joy of science because it seems as though, I mean, I don't know, but you know, um, mentally you, you really can draw a link between this doctrine of eternal recurrence and Nietzsche's, um, you know, preaching about the Ubermensch and, and moving from the camel to the lion to the child phase. Um, because it seems like, you know, that and his and his, you know, disavowing of any objective morality. Uh, and it, it seems like, you know, you really I do understand those ideas better in the light of his eternal recurrence. Yes. Yes. I agree. Yeah. Because it's just, you know, I, it does it does seem to kind of be straightforward uh, between, you know, you're reliving this life over and over. So abandon these external values and these pressures put on you and just go full on into whatever you want your life to be. Yeah. And create your own values mm. because this is your life. You own it and you're going to live it forever. So prove mm -hmm. to yourself. I mean, I think there's a sort of, uh, I suppose, seed of existentialist thought in this, actually, the idea that you create your own life and your own value. Mm on your own choices um so yeah it is it is it is it is linked to other of Nietzsche's ideas I think yeah such yeah. as this sort of self-creation uh, and of yeah. being the you know the the master of one's life and and not being a slave to conventional morality and that kind of thing mm, yeah definitely and and yeah you kind of um you finish the the article with um, you know, distinguishing between determinism and fatalism, because that's likely an immediate reaction of some people who read this mm -hmm. is, you know, the fatalistic um, response of, well, you know, if everything is just caused by some external force uh, and I'm, I'm just helplessly this, you know, hamster in this loop, then why does it matter anyway? And you say, well, no, you know, you're kind of conflating determinism and fatalism there. Yes. Now, I think the idea of fatalism is that everything is going to happen and you might as well just shrug your shoulders. You're not, you're not an agent, really. Mm. But it's possible to have a deterministic interpretation in which you yourself are one of the causal factors that's going to affect how your life pans out. Mm. And I think, although, I mean, I don't know if Nietzsche uses the term determinism, he does actually tend to use the term fate, but I think he is quite clear that one has a hand in one's own fate um and that i think is compatible with a deterministic interpretation but not a fatalistic one mm -hmm, mm -hmm. now do you get to teach um I, I don't know you know what sort of courses you're able to teach but in your classes can you do works like this uh yes uh there's a course i teach it's the, the masters uh, in philosophy for the open university and one of the modules on that is uh, an examination of Nietzsche's um, the genealogy of morals, mm. uh, which is perhaps his, his most systematically argued um, work. It's a, it's a late work uh, in which he looks at the way Western morality has 
developed and he sees its roots in Christianity. And he argued that this whole idea of genealogy is to look at the way ideas that we, we, we think are kind of fixed and solid. He shows how they have evolved and developed over time and how they're kind of contingent. They might have been different. Mm. Um, and I think the, the idea of looking at the, the genealogy, the development of our morality, is to suggest that it might have been different and it could have been different. I mean, he doesn't like um, 19th century Western morality. He doesn't like Christianity, but he doesn't like the secular alternative of utilitarianism either. Mm. And in fact, he, does, he doesn't like really any morality that treats everybody as equal. And this, I think, I mean, Nietzsche often has been accused of being the kind of philosopher of the Nazis or the mm. philosophy of the fascists, uh, in particular because after he died, his sister championed his work and she was a Nazi and an anti-Semite. And he became kind of de facto uh, official philosopher of the Nazi party after his death. Now, I think Nietzsche would have hated that because Nietzsche was not an anti-Semite, very much not so. Mm. Uh, he had close friendships with Jews and he broke off his friendship with Wagner. They quarrelled over the issue of anti-Semitism and, and he didn't want to see <laughs> Wagner again because Wagner was such an anti-Semite. Mm. So he wasn't a Nazi. He was not. I don't think we can stress that enough. But I do think this idea that morality shouldn't treat everybody equally, that we're not all equal, that there are masters and slaves, I think that could be seen as a precursor to fascism, not Nazism. Mm fascism and i think that is a charge to which nietzsche is is vulnerable but again of course we could say he couldn't possibly have known how things would turn out in the 20th century sure yeah i guess you know it, it you would to be able to you know definitively say one way or another you would need to sort of show him this is what people have done with your work yeah. do you support yeah. this or not i mean I, I it seems it seems very plausible that he would be abhorred at that yeah 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 yeah, I just, it, it is sort of one of those awkward situations where his work has sort of escaped maybe what he intended it to do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I don't know, I don't know that we can really condemn people on that basis or not. No, I think it's I better to just, to just evaluate the work irrespective of that. Yeah. yeah. Which is, yeah, which is why I asked you if you were able to teach this, um, because, you know, these, I, I just, I kind of find myself in this weird middling zone where, I love, you know, the classic analytical philosophy that people get, you know, PhDs for. But I also love this continental philosophy that we've been talking about so far. Yeah. And it just seems like if you, if you try to cut out either one, you, you really are losing something very important. Yes, I think that's true. Um, and I think very often people, don't, they choose a camp and they stick to it, don't they? Mm -hmm. They're either analytical or, or continental, as, as it's often called. But you're quite right. One ought to be able to enjoy both and one ought to be able to see connections between both. I mean, there, I think there are a lot of interesting connections between the analytic philosopher John Stuart Mill and Nietzsche. Now Nietzsche despised John Stuart Mill. Every <laughs> time he writes about Mill, it's a sneering or contemptuous uh, reference. He calls him a blockhead on one occasion. Um, but there are some quite interesting commonalities between those two philosophers. Now they're both classicists, of course. Mm. Uh, you probably know the story of John Stuart Mill's education. His father taught him ancient Greek when he was three years old. By the time he was eight, he was teaching Latin and Greek to his younger brothers and sisters. He was steeped in the classics. Uh, and, and of course, so was Nietzsche. Nietzsche famously was made a professor of classical literature at the very young age of 24. 
And they were both, so they, in a way, they came from a similar intellectual background. Uh, and both of them, they were both atheists, and they were both concerned with how to, now that God has gone, how can, what's our foundation for morality? And they come up with very different answers. So Nietzsche's answer, as we have seen, is to say that we create our own values and there are some kind of aristocratic types who who have the kind of independence uh, of spirit and the courage to be able to do this in a really full-blooded way others just follow the herd um but mill's answer is to come up well, not come up with but to to develop a form of utilitarianism uh which which uh, seeks to try to, to uh, attain the greatest happiness for the greatest number and in which everybody is regarded as equal. So they have very different answers, to, but they are grappling with the same problem. And I think, too, Mill is very interested and, very, and puts a high value on individuality. In his book on liberty, he has a whole chapter about the importance of being true to oneself, not creating one's own values, but, but creating one's own kind of life and deciding what, what, what's good. And I think that that is an attitude that Nietzsche actually would have been in sympathy with, this, this, this prizing of individuality. Yeah. So I think you can sometimes get philosophers from different traditions and find interesting comparisons and contrasts between them. And that's, I think, is why it's good to be aware of both traditions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, it's almost even strange to to split them and, and sort of juxtapose yeah. them in that way, because it's, it yeah. seems like it's much closer to a spectrum. And like you said, you yeah. know, you, joining, joining, you know, parts of both is sometimes the best, you know, examination that you can do, yeah. which, I mean, you just gave a perfect example of, I mean, it's super yeah. interesting how, you know, Mill o almost wanted this sort of, it was almost more of a scientific approach. It seems, you know, for Mill, if this is, this is the, the value that we want to maximize. And now it's, it's the question of how yeah. to, to get to there. And Nietzsche, you know, seems to be stuck much more on the why, um, yeah. you know, yeah. wh why could any of these be yeah. the case? Um, yeah. And, yeah. and yeah, the how, I mean, the how is almost, it's almost irrelevant to Nietzsche. It's, it's all about the why. And once you know the why, then just, just go for it. Yeah. 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 So the uh, this is this is going to be an inept pivot, but I also wanted to talk to you about your uh, your new book, um, which is a, an academic book, right? Yes, it is. Okay. Um, I've got a, I've got a copy here that you might like to see. It's called Should. A, well, that probably reversed the print, won't it? No, no, um, it, it corrected it. Yeah. I did. Okay. Yep. Should a liberal state ban the burqa? And this is actually based on the subject of my PhD. Hmm. Um, and so it is a, it's an academic book, but it's quite, it's gone quite a topical, quite a contemporary question. And it is very much in the analytic tradition. I draw quite heavily on liberal philosophers like John Stuart Mill and more, and also like John Rawls, uh, and also Martha Nussbaum. Mm. Um, and it struck me, I don't think you've had quite the same controversy in America, but a number of European countries have banned Burka, starting with uh, France in 2010. I think Belgium have also banned it, Denmark have banned it, I think in one of the regions of Switzerland has banned it. Um, I think Bulgaria also has banned it. Hmm. Um, and there are, there are liberal philosophers who, who don't see this as a, as a problem. Um, there are Martha Nussbaum, for example, in her book, The New Religious Intolerance, published in 2012, simply thinks this is an illiberal measure 
you shouldn't ban the burqa. It's an interference with religious uh, liberty. And of course, religious tolerance is very, very important in the religious, in, in, sorry, in the liberal tradition. Mm-hmm. That's kind of where it comes from, actually. Liberalism begins with uh, religious tolerance, I think. On the other hand, uh, to me, there's a tension going on in liberalism here. Mm. Uh, liberals, and I would identify myself as a, as, as a liberal in the, in the traditional sense, um, liberals do believe in religious tolerance. They do believe in, in allowing people to make their own choices uh, in life. They be- obviously, they believe in individual liberty. And they tend to believe in, in protecting cultural resources. But on the other hand, liberals do believe in equality between the sexes. There's a gender asymmetry about the burqa, which is troubling, I think. Mm. There's a possible question of, is coercion involved here? Is there cultural pressure? Is it genuinely a free choice? Then there's a whole set of other questions, which are not to do so much with the individual burqa wearer herself, but the effects on society. Does it raise problems of security, transparency, communication, identification, things like this. So these are questions that I take seriously. In the end, I come down really on Martha Nussbaum's side. I think it should not be banned. Mm. But I think it's not simple. I don't think we can just dismiss it and say, oh, it's just a bunch of racists who want to ban it. I think we need to look at those arguments carefully and provide good liberal reasons why it shouldn't be banned. And I think we should also put in the caveat that it's fine to require temporary removal of face coverings for things like airports or law courts or examination halls or driving tests or or whatever. Um, And it does seem to me that if the burqa became a kind of garment that on given specified occasions was sort of taken on and off, it would lose a lot of its talismanic power. People would stop being so worried about it, I think. Mm. Um, and I've kind of sketched it in rather, rather briefly there, but it's, it's actually yeah. quite a long and detailed examination of the question, but that's really where I'm coming from. Yeah. No, it sounds like a, a fascinating book because it really is. It's one of the toughest questions I think of political philosophy today. I mean, yeah. I, it's, it's, it's gotta be one of the most convoluted and complicated ones. Yeah. And, and I, I would imagine being able to just lay it out in a book would be very, very useful. Yeah, and it was actually very satisfying to be able to disentangle a number of different elements and talk about them one by one. Of course, yeah. the great irony, this, this book only came out like two months ago. It came out at a time when most of the population <laughs> walking around in public wearing face masks. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, that put a very different valence on it because, you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's, again, yeah. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that I think it demonstrates the fact that people can appear in public with face masks on mm. and go about their daily business. And if required to do so, can take them off, put them back on. We've coped with that fine. Yeah. So I think that's, that's another argument to support my conclusion that, that you really don't need to ban public face coverings. Mm-hmm. And I, I take it, I mean, obviously, you know, I haven't read the book, um, but it seems like from what you're saying, you, you would maybe conceptualize it as it's a question of, of where we fall on a spectrum of concerns. And when this is talked about, in the media, you know, it really is just sort of a wholesale, it's a, it's a binary choice. And it, it doesn't seem like that's the wisest way to think about it. No. Um, yeah. Yeah. And actually, I think, I think a, lot, a lot of questions are best thought of as a position on a spectrum rather than a dichotomy. I think that's a good way to think. Actually. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because it just seems to, 
you know, when you think about it as, you know, <laughs> do we just flat out ban this or do we just flat out not? And, and you don't really maybe particularly understand the different, you know, pulls from different concerns, you know, with, with you know, um, you know the, the concerns of feminism and, and women empowerment versus yeah. the concerns of public safety versus the concern, you know, it's, there's all of these different, yeah. these different tensions pulling us in different directions and, and evaluating those, I would imagine, you know, in their, in their entirety allows you to much more reasonably occupy yourself on, a, uh, on various spectrums of concerns. Yes, it does. And also right, writing the book enabled me to have a much sharper and more detailed view mm. of more general questions within liberalism, like paternalism, the role of personal autonomy, mm. um, uh, multiculturalism, group rights, things like this. It, it gave me a, mu a much clearer conception of, the, of, of those ideas. And I mm. think, as I say in the book, the burqa is a contemporary issue. Maybe in 20 years' time, it won't be a hot-button issue. Maybe people won't be interested in it any longer. Maybe, maybe, it'll, 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 maybe the custom will decline, you know. Mm. Um, but I think those kind of questions about possible conflicts between religion and feminism, about the role of paternalism in liberal theory, about multicultural theory and how it accommodates individual rights, those are, those are questions that liberals will always be interested in. Mm. And it also highlights, I mean, you know, one of the, the best things about living in a secular state is, is you know, that we do, it's, it's almost a good thing that we have these concerns. And I think that's a lot of things, or a, a thing that a lot of people maybe miss in America specifically. It seems like we, we really lack the understanding of what a secular state is. Um, mm, maybe. Um... Maybe know. not all of the U.S. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know that the, in general, the the U.S. is a, is a more religious society probably than, mm. than than most European countries. But I think I would I, I would I would have classified um, America as a as a secular state. I mean, yeah, yeah, for it, sure. You don't have a state religion, do you? No, no. Yeah. But I I just mean that maybe individuals don't on a, on a large scale don't understand that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, maybe you're right. I mean, this, this, this is, do, do you know the work of Martha Nussbaum? I, I think she is one of the greatest living yeah. philosophers, actually. Uh, and she's, she's written a lot about religion in America. She's written, mm. um, so this book of hers, Liberty of Conscience, mm. um, in defense of America's tradition of religious equality. So she puts the case that America takes religious freedom religious tolerance, uh, religious equality, actually more seriously than, than European countries. Mm. Uh, and she thinks Europe has a lot to learn from America. Uh, Interesting. About, about the importance of religion in people's lives. She says that Europeans who may, may, be more, may be inclined to dismiss uh, people's religious freedom, whereas Americans take it seriously. Hmm. What does she do with the point, you know, because I, I don't know, I'm sure that she has a lot of good reasons for that, but what, what does she do with the... The example of, um, you know, in America, people overwhelmingly enacting to codify into law uh, positions that are arrived at in virtue of the religion, you know, that, that uh, Christianity that most of Americans hold, such as, you know, abortion laws, for instance. Yeah, well, well, well she doesn't like that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> she, 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 she maintains that religious equality in America is under threat from two directions. Mm. It's under threat from right-wing 
evangelical Christians and it's under threat from left-wing kind of sneering uh, atheists like Daniel Okay. Mm. So she tries to steer a middle course. Okay, okay. That that sounds really interesting. I might I might uh, get that book. Yeah, do. Yeah, I um I definitely not I know, you know, I, I recognize the name Martha Nussbaum, but I don't I should read much more of her than I think I have. Yeah. Well, I'd actually like to recommend I think one of one of her most recent books uh is this one a very different kind of book anger and forgiveness mm. and I maybe think that's this, why i've heard it yeah it's a great book i think this is as much a contribution really to human psychology as it is to to philosophy but she mm. makes a very very strong argument there that anger is she thinks is normatively not good she thinks it, it is something we, we should try to avoid and anger tends to make us feel self-righteous it tends to make us feel justified but it's not a good guide to ethical or political action uh, and she's all about forgiveness. That's right. I think, you know what, I, I, maybe I had heard or read a review of that book, and that's why I was familiar with her. That, okay, that does ring a bell. Yeah, that's a very interesting viewpoint. And I, I think I'm pretty sympathetic to it. Yeah, me too. Me too. It's very interesting. There's that um, you know, saying of, uh, what is it, anger poisons. It's like a, it poisons the vessel which carries it. Oh, I don't know that one. That's oh, really? Okay, yeah. That's a, that's a, maybe it's an American saying. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, well, we're coming up on an hour, uh, Brandon. And so I just wanted to thank you again. This has been a really, really fun and enjoyable podcast for me. Well, I've enjoyed it very much too. So thank you very much indeed. Yeah. Before we, um, before we close out, if you could uh, just tell people where they can find out more about you and your books and your work. Oh, that's a good, I don't, I, don't, <laughs> I, I do, I do have a, a website which okay. is concerned with, but, but it's a, quite a, a specific uh, topic. I, I write about the English language. I write about developments in English and new words and, and new slang and, and things like that. Um, and that's, that's a WordPress site. That's brandonrobshaw.wordpress. Hmm. Um, and they can find out a little bit more about me actually on that, on that WordPress site. Great. I will leave uh, for listeners uh, links to all of the relevant sources in the description below. Um, So great. So Brandon, thank you again so much for doing this. Thank you very much indeed. It's been a pleasure. Okay. Well, I hope that you enjoyed that. Um, Like I said at the introduction, I I really found this conversation valuable. And anything that we reference, uh, I will leave notes in the description below to access that. Um, If you want to support me and my project and and what I'm doing on the show, you can do so by going to patreon.com forward slash Jordan Myers. That's J-O-R-D-A-N-M-Y-E-R-S. You can also support me in non-monetary ways, which are equally helpful by sharing the show on Twitter or on social media or wherever else you want to share it. You can also rate it on Apple Podcasts. You can like this video on YouTube or subscribe on YouTube or your RSS feeds. You can discuss it on your own show. And you can also connect with me or recommend uh, guests or topics to cover. You can get in contact with me at Plato's Cave Podcast at gmail.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at Jordan underscore C underscore Myers. And like I said, all of the links to this and and everything else um, will be in the description below. So... As always, thank you for listening, and keep struggling to escape the cave. Plato's Cave is produced by Muckraker Media. You can find out more at muckrakermedia.org.